all that you have done for us. Jesus, thank you. Spirit, thank you. As we now look into your word, we ask that you would help us to see, understand what's there. And so work in us that we would be changed by it. Respond well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Eight to ten-year-olds, you are dismissed. Have a wonderful session. We are taking a break today from our study in 1 Samuel. Have you found that to be a blessing? Yes. We look forward to Andrew picking that up next week on Resurrection Sunday. For today, we'll be in another Old Testament book. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, or if you're from the UK, Isaiah, chapter 66, final chapter. And we will focus on the first two verses. Let's read them. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah is a rather long book, isn't it? Many of you know something of its riches. Isaiah served as a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah roughly 700 years before the birth of Jesus. His 50-plus years of ministry took place during a long period of spiritual decline in Israel. People basically had stopped trusting God, many of them wandering off into pagan idolatry. Isaiah's message is mixed. He tells of a coming judgment on sin and a great salvation. Renewal. Over and over, this book swings back and forth between these pronouncements or oracles of judgment and oracles of salvation. Thankfully, the book generally moves from an emphasis on the bad news to one of good news. The commentator Greg Gilbert tells us that Isaiah may be divided into three sections. Chapters 1 to 37 tell of a coming divine king. Chapters 38 to 55, a suffering servant. 56 to 66, an anointed conqueror who brings salvation. So king, servant, anointed one, all of these pointing to Jesus Christ. Isaiah paints a glorious picture of Christ. What is the literary style of this book, the genre? Clearly, this is visionary writing. Isaiah is given things to see, conveying spiritual truths. 
God's thoughts on the spiritual condition of his people and how his plan of redemption will unfold over time. Isaiah expresses these mostly in poetry. And so we find things like poetic imagery and metaphor, repetition, and parallelism where successive lines complement one another to expand the meaning. The writing is also sometimes apocalyptic with vivid cosmic images, often symbolic, that capture our imagination. This sometimes makes the book a challenge to interpret, but it also gives us a great depth and richness as these word pictures unfold before us. God chose this literary form for a purpose. Another challenge in Isaiah, the timing of some of what's predicted. Sometimes he appears to speak of a near fulfillment as within that generation. Other times there may be multiple fulfillments, near and far. And sometimes an ultimate fulfillment at the end of time, an eschatological or end time fulfillment. So there's this telescoping of time, near and far. Someone has mentioned the analogy of looking at a mountain range from a distance. Picture that. Sometimes it's hard to tell how far away one mountain is behind another, right? And so it is with some prophetic texts. Now, the ESV Literary Study Bible points out there that this final chapter, 66, really sums up and recapitulates the form and message of the entire book with this alternating between judgment and blessing and here reaching an ultimate destination. Commentators differ in how they outline chapter 66. Actually, much of Isaiah is difficult to outline because how things are woven together and the poetic style. Generally, verses 1 to 6 contrast true worship versus false worship. 7 to 14 has assurance for true worshipers. 15 to 17, God's judgment on false worshipers. And 18 to 24, a final judgment and salvation. Now, Isaiah lived under the old covenant, right? But at various points, he looks ahead to the new covenant. Prophets often have this forward look. And toward the end of the book, he gives us glimpses of the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan, where it is all going. And we know from the rest of the Bible that it's Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, who brings the fulfillment of all of the promises from all of the previous covenants concerning creation made with Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, For all of the promises of God find their yes in Him. And the new covenant, over time, brings with it a great expansion in terms of people groups and territory. That is the trajectory of God's plan. For one thing, salvation extends beyond the nation of Israel to the Gentiles, the nations. We find hints of that throughout the Old Testament, right? Right here in Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 6, God the Father speaking to Christ says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Going back to Genesis, 
God tells Abraham, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Think about it. That's happening now, isn't it? And so, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that Gentiles turning to God are no longer outside of His covenant people. They're no longer aliens. They've been brought near. Indeed, they're fellow citizens, members of the household of God. And Romans 11 gives us the image of an olive tree. The root is Israel, the Jews, and Gentiles have been grafted into this tree so we have Jew and Gentile together in the one people of God. So there's this expansion in people groups. The new covenant also brings an expansion in territory. Canaan, the land that God promised Abraham, was to foreshadow something far greater. Romans 4.13 speaks of the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Something far greater is coming. We find reference to this in the last few chapters of Isaiah. Look, for example, over at chapter 65, Isaiah 65 and verse 17. God says, I create new heavens and a new earth. Wow. Jesus referred to this in Matthew 19, 28 as the regeneration, the renewal of all things. Curse on creation is reversed. There's a new creation coming, and Christian, you are part of that. This is where history is going. This is where the new covenant is taking us. So consistent with that, in Isaiah 66, we see, starting at verse 18, a picture of a great gathering from all nations and tongues declaring the glory of God. And then look at verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I shall make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. He's writing here in a manner his Old Testament audience would relate to. They observe the Sabbath and the new moon as times of worship and celebration. And so there will be great worship and celebration in the renewal of all things. But then notice... How this book ends, verse 24, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Seven centuries later, Jesus quoted this text as a graphic picture of hell, eternal judgment. That's a pretty ominous way to end the book, isn't it? One last time here, Isaiah lays out these two alternatives. A global gathering of worship in the regenerated creation or eternal punishment in hell. Question. 
Do you know which of these you are heading for? What is the trajectory of your life? Do you know how one enters into the true worship of God? That brings us to our text, verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. The Lord here is Yahweh, the covenant name for God, the self-existing one. Heaven is my throne. Notice it does not say my throne is in heaven. No, it's heaven is my throne. This is God's immensity and absolute sovereignty in authority over everything, everyone. The earth is my footstool. This pictures subjection, something being underfoot. We see that image throughout Scripture. The whole earth is in subjection to, under the rule of, the sovereign, immense creator, God. That kind of puts us in our place, doesn't it? That sets up this question. What is the house that you would build for me? And what or where is the place of my rest? Seems to be addressing people who have a wrong idea here. People perhaps going through the motions of temple building or planning to build a temple from wrong motives. What are you doing? What are you thinking? Now, question. In the Old Covenant era, when this was written, was building a temple for God a wrong thing to do? No. God Himself instructed His people to build first a portable tabernacle, later a temple, with very detailed instructions, right? It was to serve as a representation of the presence of God dwelling among His people and a place for the people to gather for corporate worship. Also, the various elements of the temple, things like the altar, lampstand, incense, Ark of the Covenant, priesthood, etc., all in some way pointed forward to Christ and what He would do to reconcile people to Himself. So temple building was endorsed by God, and the temple itself is a key part of Israel's worship. Now, these verses may relate specifically to the generation in Israel after the exile to Babylon. Some commentators think so. Remember, about a hundred years after Isaiah, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem with its temple. People were exiled to Babylon. Eventually, they came back, right, with Ezra, Nehemiah, and a new temple was built under Zerubbabel. So that scenario may be in view here, getting ready to build that temple. Whether or not that is the case, the principles we find in these verses are timeless. So what's the problem here? Well, for one thing, God cannot be contained in a building, right? You cannot restrict Him like that. We can't control Him in any way. Even Solomon, who built the great temple standing during Isaiah's time, understood this. 
He says in 1 Kings 8.27 at the dedication of the temple he built, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. He's right. God is actually omnipresent, present everywhere. Then there's another issue uh, here. Look at verse 2. Those of you who would build a temple for me, what materials are you going to build it with? Trees, bronze, gold, other materials you might fashion? All of these are just things I've created. God says, he, he's not real impressed with that. We might be impressed, especially a big, beautiful temple building. He's not. He's not. And then there's something else going on here. Clearly through this chapter, as we see through so much of Isaiah, there is a comparison being made between the true worship of God and false, hypocritical worship. For example, look at verse 3. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. What's he saying? Notice the first part of each line is a legitimate part of Old Covenant worship. Slaughtering an ox, sacrificing a lamb, presenting a grain offering, frankincense. But the second part of each line is something terribly corrupt. Killing a man, breaking a dog's neck, offering pig's blood, blessing an idol. God is describing here sinful, empty, false worship. People going through the motions of religious activity from a corrupt heart. And their activity in God's eyes is abhorrent. And on into verse 6, we find that people caught up in this are heading for the judgment of God. Clearly, going through the motion, people going through the motions of external religion while their hearts are far from God does not honor God, does not bring His favor. But there is a temptation for fallen man to think that religious activity, offering some act of service to God, puts him in our debt, obligates him to us. The idea that we can get something from God if we do something for Him. This is something that we can all fall into. If I do certain things, if I go to church, if I get, give to some ministry, if I read a few more verses, if I build a temple, build a temple for God, then God will owe me something. Now, you'd probably never say that, but think about it. Has that ever crossed your mind? We cannot obligate God to serve us. We cannot buy the favor of God with our religious activity, including building Him a temple. It doesn't work that way. Romans 11.35 asks, Who is given a gift to God, to Him, to God, that He might be repaid? The truth is, God doesn't need anything from us, right? 
He is totally self-sufficient. So one's motive is the issue here, and that reflects one's heart condition. God looks favorably on true worship from hearts that love Him sincerely. Jesus said, John 4, 24, the Father is seeking people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. That comes from a heart that has been changed, regenerated by God, right? Regenerated by the Holy Spirit. But religious activity from a heart set on rebelling against God is hypocrisy. Remember in the New Testament, the most severe denunciations from Jesus were directed to whom? Pharisees, characterized by self-righteous pride and hypocrisy. See Matthew 23. And in Matthew 15, Jesus actually quoted from Isaiah to say this, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Theirs is a false, empty worship. Many had fallen into that in Isaiah's day and in Jesus' day, and many continue that today. Thankfully, in Isaiah 66, the second part of verse 2, we find a description of those who offer true and genuine worship. Look at it there. But this is the one to whom I will look. This word look has the sense of to have regard for, esteem, even desire. So some translations have look attentively or look on with favor. This is a favorable look. We see that from the rest of the passage. Now think about it. Someone mentioned this. Think about it. How important is this? Okay, I mean, you want to be in a position of favor with God? Here it is. We'll look at these items in detail shortly. But before that, consider a few things. First, we find this idea of God looking on a person with favor throughout the Bible, especially in its poetry. For example, here is the blessing of Aaron from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. That's beautiful, isn't it? And we know that God doesn't have a physical face, right? So th this is poetic language to express favor from God, the blessing of God. And then there's this prayer from Psalm 4, verse 6. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Show us your favor. Look on us with favor. One more example fits well with our text in Isaiah. Psalm 33, 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. Think, tremble at His word. God looking on with favor. Now, another thing to consider in these two verses in Isaiah 66. Notice the question in verse 1. 
God says, what is the house? What is the place? Or where is the place of my rest? Where will I dwell? Now we know that God doesn't need to rest because he's tired, right? Isaiah 40 tells us he doesn't grow faint, doesn't grow weary. But this imagery, place of my rest in a house, can also have the sense of God dwelling with his people in peace. Actually, we find this just a few chapters earlier. Turn to chapter 57 for a moment, a couple chapters earlier, and we will look there at verse 15. Isaiah 57, verse 15, says this. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. There's that immensity again, right? Whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Sounds a lot like our passage, right? I dwell with the one who is contrite and humble. This is a key part of the covenants we see unfolding across the Bible. This idea of God dwelling with His people. That's the language used. I will be their God. They will be my people. I will dwell with them. We see that over and over. And this picture of dwelling in a house, place of rest, carries with it the beautiful sense of fellowship and harmony and love conveyed by the Hebrew word shalom. This is wholeness, well-being, the sense that everything's right. We all long for that, right? Thank God through Christ, we are brought into this reality the peaceful dwelling of God with us. Think about Psalm 23, how it ends. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's our future. Praise God for that, amen? In John 14, 23, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Earlier in that chapter, speaking of the Holy Spirit whom he would send, Jesus said this, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So the, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, dwelling with his people, even in his people. Remember, Paul spoke of Christ in me. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, in the year 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the Jerusalem temple. You can still see some remains of it today. And in the plan of God, there is no longer a need for a physical temple, right? 
Old covenant came to an end when Jesus brought in the new. The types and shadows of the old covenant came to an end because the reality came in the person and work of Jesus. And ultimately in heaven, there is no need for a physical temple. See Revelation 21. In the life to come, we will be in God's direct, immediate presence. But before that, in this life, God dwells in His people spiritually dwells in them and so the new testament picks up this temple imagery and applies it to christians for example second corinthians 6 16 paul writes we believers are the temple of the living god as god said i will make my dwelling among them and walk among them i will be their god they shall be my people again that covenant language Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2 both speak of Christians being built together as a temple in which God dwells. That's beautiful, isn't it? Think about it. Part of that temple is sitting right here today. Some of you are looking especially radiant today. It's either that or the lights, I don't know. This is a spiritual reality, God dwelling in and among his people. And so we could say that the question asked in Isaiah 66, 1 is, where is the place of my rest? Where will I dwell? Is answered in verse 2. I will look to dwell with my favor, my peaceful presence in the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let's now look at these three descriptors of the one in whom God looks to dwell. First, the one who is humble. Humility happens as we understand ourselves accurately and understand God accurately. That tends to make us humble. It is to truly know yourself in view of who God is. Would you agree we often get those things pretty messed up? But that is the right response based on reality. Genuine humility is blessed by God. Remember Jesus said, blessed are the meek, the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Both Peter and James cite Proverbs 3.34, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Something repeated that many times must be important for us, right? And this is how one enters into salvation with a humble heart. Like in Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and tax collector, Luke 18. Remember the tax collector He's got nothing to offer, right? No religious activity to point to, nothing to merit favor from God. His simple plea, God be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. And he, not the self-righteous, proud Pharisee, was justified, counted righteous before God. Those who trust in Christ are saved by the work he has done, which is credited to us, totally by grace. Thus, Christians are to be a humble people. The next descriptor here, contrite in spirit. To be contrite 
is to be broken because of sin. Broken over our sin. This also is the right response, yes? A beautiful place to see that is Psalm 51, David's prayer of repentance. He writes, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Yeah, I see it. I confess it. The sacrifices of God. What is God looking for? A broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. No, God looks on that with favor. Think about it. How aware of you, or how aware are you of sin in you? And when you sin, what is your response? What is your typical response? Is there perhaps some ongoing sin even now in your life that you need to break over? Perhaps something that someone has brought to your attention, made known to you. You don't like it. You don't want to see it. But we know too well something of the wrong responses to sin, don't we? Things like excuse it away, blame, blame somebody else. That's pretty easy to do. Blame God. How about this one? Ignore and override. How does that work out? God help us. May those things be less and less our response. May true contrition be our life pattern. Amen? To pray like David, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Christian, let Isaiah 66 2 be a great encouragement to you today that God looks with favor on, dwells peaceably with the one who is contrite in spirit. Think about that into this next week. The third and final descriptor of the one in whom God will dwell, the one who trembles at my word. So much to say about this. How do you respond to the word of God? What happens in you when it's brought to you, when you're exposed to it, when you think about it? Sadly, the response of many people is indifference. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't register. They certainly don't tremble before it. That's a very common way to disregard, reject the Scripture. You probably know people who have that response. Others have a more active, hostile response. I don't like what it says. That's really a hard issue, right? Many have some sense that it's true, but they suppress that. That is the default response of fallen man, according to Romans 1. And then there are some who wrestle with a more basic question. Is there a word of God? Is there a God and has he spoken? Doubts on that go way back, right? How far back? 
Genesis 3, verse 1. Did God actually say? Well, yeah, actually he did. And how consequential was that encounter? We don't have to look hard in our time, as in all previous times, to find voices casting doubt on the idea that God has spoken in a way that we can understand. But thank God, He continues to work in people's hearts to enable them to see that, yes, He has. He's revealed Himself clearly. First in creation, that which He has made, that's general revelation with the incredible power and design and beauty. Just look around. And He's given us what we call special revelation. His written word, the Scripture, which tells of the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, Himself called the Word. The book of Hebrews opens with this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And so we believe that the Bible, with its 66 books, is the written Word of God. God working through the agency of human authors in such a way that what they wrote is exactly what God intended. Peter put it this way, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As Paul says, all Scripture is God-breathed. He is its ultimate author. It is His Word. So question, do you see that? Do you recognize that? In John 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Do you recognize the voice of God in His Word? I love the quote from Charles Spurgeon. Words to the effect that a sermon is not or should not be a lecture about the Scripture. A sermon is Scripture itself opened up. That's what resonates with us, right? That's what we want. That's what we respond to. And thankfully, we are so blessed in this church with a consistent, faithful opening up of God's Word. Amen? The Westminster Larger Catechism, question four, asks this. How does it appear that the Scriptures are the Word of God? How is that recognized? Notice how the answer points to a work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. It says this. The Scriptures manifest themselves to be the Word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts, in other words, how everything fits together perfectly, and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, by their light and power to convince and convert sinners and to conform and to build up believers unto salvation, but the Spirit of God bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man is alone fully able to persuade it that they are the very Word of God. End quote. This work of the Spirit is part of regeneration, being born again, born of the Spirit, born of God. Without that, 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us the natural person does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, 
for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So this work of God in the heart is critical. And that work is effective. Paul commends the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, with this. And we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now, in our text in verse 2, Obviously, this is a, this is a right God-honoring trembling in view here, yes? We can compare and contrast that with a different type of trembling, the trembling of one who stands in opposition to God. This gets interesting. It relates in different ways. It relates to the different ways that one may fear God. And here I would refer you to Pastor Jason's sermon, last May 30th, titled The Fear of the Lord. So very helpful, as all of his teaching tends to be. And also the book by Michael Reeves, Rejoice and Tremble, which covers this topic in depth. We'll just consider a few points. Think for a moment about the human response of fear and trembling. We're wired for that, right? Certain things in life cause us to fear, even to tremble. That can happen, happen from something very negative, some threat of danger. Think of a, a criminal breaking into your home at night or some experience that just caused you real fear. On the other hand, we can also be brought to fear and trembling by something very positive, something so wonderful that it just overwhelms us. For example, you guys who are married, think about this. On your wedding day, when you first saw your bride, did that not cause you to tremble? Can I get an amen to that? Yes, God the giver of good gifts. You should probably say yes to that, or you may tremble for another reason. And think about this. We can connect the Word of God with His presence, right? We experience something of the presence of God through His Word. Consider examples in Scripture when people encountered God's presence directly. Michael Reeves points out that these all fell on their faces. Abraham, Joshua, David, Ezekiel, Daniel, John, Isaiah himself in chapter 6 records his experience in God's direct presence. Woe is me. I am lost. I am undone. I'm coming apart. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Or think of Peter. When he first realized who Jesus is, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. In the presence of God, in awareness of His holiness, rightly causes one to tremble. Now, think about this. Sinners persisting in flat-out rebellion against God should fear Him, right? 
His just wrath. Psalm 2 speaks of sinners being terrified in the fury of God. We might call this a sinful fear of the Lord, a sinful trembling. Pictured in Revelation 6, the wrath of God rightly falling on sinners who refuse to repent. It says this, They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Yeah, be afraid. If you're not right right with God, you should fear his righteous judgment and tremble. James tells us that the demons themselves, the forces of evil, tremble before God. They know truth about God, but they reject it. They hate it. Think about how demons responded to Jesus when he walked this earth. They know about coming judgment, and they fear it. They tremble. But thank God, you who are united to Christ by faith, You don't tremble in that way, right? You've been born of God. You have a new heart. You know God. You love God. 1 John 4.18 says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear, that is sinful fear, has to do with punishment. And for the Christian, praise God, Jesus bore the wrath of God, the penalty for all of our sin, on himself. On a cross, he made propitiation for us. That means that his sacrifice satisfied the justice of God, and so his wrath, his righteous response to sin, has been turned away from us. Praise God. And so, we who belong to Christ, we tremble before God and his word for very different reasons. Let's look at a few of those. First, Because it is the Word of God, we tremble because of its gravity, its sheer weightiness. Think about it. You've got a lot of folks in your life with authority, right, that speak to you. No one else speaks with such authority, right? Nobody even comes close as what we find in Scripture. Matters of life and death, eternity, And this is how we come to know God. So Scripture has supreme importance and gravity for us. Related to that, we tremble before the Word as we see the majesty and glory of God in it. Michael Reeves Reeves describes this as the right response to God's full-orbed revelation of Himself in all His grace and glory, overwhelmed by His goodness and majesty and holiness and grace and righteousness by all that God is, the faithful tremble. Seeing clearly the dazzling beauty and splendor of God must cause our hearts to quake. End quote. That's a godly fear. Spurgeon again said this, The word of the Lord is full of majesty. 
There is a divine royalty about every sentence of Scripture which the true believer feels and recognizes and therefore trembles before it. End quote. We see an awesomeness. We see the glory of God in His Word. And so we affirm Psalm 96, 4, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Later in that psalm, this is the universal right response. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Psalm 104, 32, God looks on the earth and it trembles. All of creation trembling before its creator. Our fear of God goes to our very purpose, what we were created for. The book of Ecclesiastes concludes with this. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That sums it up. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You want to know something? That's where you start. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to be wise, you want to live well, that's where you start. And again, this happens in us by a work of God in the heart. Jeremiah 32.40, God speaking of new covenant believers says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. God gives new hearts inclined to love and obey Him. Psalm 128, 1, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. A right fear of God, trembling at His word, shows itself in joyful obedience. Another reason we tremble, delight. Delight in God, delight in His Word. Psalm 112.1, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. Psalm 119.97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. It was interesting, last month I was working with a patient and just kind of out of the blue he asked me, do you meditate? I said, I do think about the Bible a lot. I hope that was helpful. This delighting in the Word is all over Psalm 119, right? Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 127, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. And verse 174, your law, your word, is my delight. And perhaps a surprising passage on this, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3, in a prophecy looking forward to Christ, it says this, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. God the Son, himself delighting in the fear of the Lord. And whereas the sinful fear of one rebelling against God drives them away from God, a right fear of God drives us closer to Him as children 
coming to a father. Listen to Psalm 103, 13. As a father shows compassion on his children, to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. We earthly fathers love it when our children come to us, right? God is the perfect father who loves and cares for his children. Praise God for that. The truth is we thrive in the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Then there's Jesus quoting Deuteronomy. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's how we live. God uses his word both to save and to sanctify. Hebrews 4.12, the word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces deep. It does its work in hearts as God intends. And in the Spirit's power, it brings life. And so we hold God's word in the highest regard. We value it supremely. Again, the writer of Psalm 119, verse 72, the law from your mouth is better to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. It is precious. It is priceless. Would you agree? And then there's Job. In the midst of severe suffering, Job 23, 12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Highest value. Perhaps especially in suffering. One more thing connected with the right fear of God. Joy. Psalm 2.11 exhorts us to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Ours is to be a joyful Trembling. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. And so, all of these things go into a right fear and trembling before God and His Word. Gravity, delight, supreme value, an overwhelming sense of God and His glory, and joy. And this is the response that God is looking for to favor and to dwell with. This is the one to whom I will look. He or she who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. These are the true worshipers. Where do we go to conclude this? First, if this isn't you, you're not humble before God. You're not broken over your sin. You don't tremble at God's word. Be honest about that and pray to God and ask Him to do a work in your heart. Confess before Him, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Trust in Jesus Christ to save you. Call out to Him. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. God is just and He is merciful 
He has provided a way for you to be reconciled to God, to Him. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. Embrace Him. And for those here who are believers, how are we to respond to these things? Well, we are all works in progress, right? We are all on the way. Truth is, we're not consistently humble. Our view of God is often too low. Our view of ourselves is often too high or skewed in some other way. There is a young lady here who routinely writes some beautiful prayer requests. Here's her request from last week. It's simple, that I would be humble. So that's a good prayer for all of us, right? And we are not consistently contrite, broken over our sin. We need to break daily our contrition then leading to a joyful repentance, turning from sin. That needs to be our life pattern, right? And I think we can all tremble before God's word more than we do. Would you agree? That's something we can grow in. Psalm 34, 11 says, Come, old children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. This is something we can learn, we can grow in. It's interesting, our love for and trembling before the Word of God increases as we progress in our understanding of it. Again, this from Spurgeon. An intelligent appreciation of the Word of God can alone make a man tremble at it. And the more he understands it, the more cause for trembling will he see in it. And the more he enjoys it, the more will he tremble. I know so many of you here who would attest to that. The more you look into the Scripture, the better it gets, right? Glory of God just shines brighter and brighter. It drives us to worship. As R.C. Sproul said, theology done well leads to doxology. Praise and glory to God. I've been in a few small groups since this church started seven years ago. I'm in one now with people who love God, love His Word. They desire to know Scripture better in order to know God better. It's a joy to be around people like that, isn't it? Yes. There are many of you in this church who rightly tremble at the Word of God. We see that in your response, for example, on Sunday morning, when the Scripture is read, sung, preached, prayed, you are listening, you are tracking. This resonates with you. It's almost as if you're saying, we want this, we love this, we delight in this. Yes, sometimes it's hard, Sometimes the Word of God hurts, broken by it, but then there is forgiveness and joy. And when it opens up for you and you really see what's there, you're thinking, wow, this is amazing. 
and you tremble. You are the ones with whom, in whom, God dwells. The truth is, cultivating these things, growing in humility, contrition, a right fear of God, is not really complicated. There is no magic formula. It's just the ordinary means of grace, right? Prayer, ministry of the word, fellowship of believers, in a lifelong process that we get to do together. And be encouraged because God himself empowers this growth. Paul in Philippians tells us to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He provides the power. So press on. Read the scripture. Pray and ask God, ask God to help you understand it. Sit under the faithful preaching of it. Study it. Listen to faithful teachers. Read what they write. Meditate on it. Think about day and night. Tremble before it. And put it into practice. Have it change you. Shape your life. And usher you into the next life. And be encouraged that God himself looks to dwell peaceably with you. Let's end this with a glimpse of where we're heading, okay? Let this encourage you. From Revelation 21, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That's where we're heading. But before that, in this life, may God be pleased with our worship of Him. Amen? And may this church, now and for a long time to come, be filled with people who are humble, who are contrite in spirit, and who tremble at His word. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask that you would grow us into a people who demonstrate these things we've looked at today. That we would offer you true, genuine worship. That we would be more and more a people who are humble, genuinely contrite in spirit, a people who rightly tremble at your word. And for that, we will give you all praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.